electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the runaway Russell small cap surge to a new record high. Why it is a very positive sign for your money. We'll discuss and debate the state of stocks with our investment committee today. Joining me for the hour, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, and Kerry Firestone, the CEO of RES Asset Management. Let's go to the wall. Stocks are now mixed. The VIX briefly dipping below 20 today. You see the Russell's gone negative, too, but we're taking a big picture look, a big focus on the Russell, trying for its eighth straight positive day, the 10th record close of 2021. Joe, I paint this as a very positive sign for the overall stock market. It equates to economic optimism, Scott. If you go back to 1980 and you look at the eight recessions, in each one of those recessions, it was the equity size class of small caps that led the economy out of the recession. So I I can look beyond the U.S. I could see the economic optimism that's represented by the performance of the emerging markets and the Chinese equities market. And then I could look back here in the U.S. and I could see that small caps, they are squarely positioned to benefit most. Why? Because they have the interest rate sensitivity and they are viewed as companies that have weaker balance sheet. So a company in a weaker balance sheet in an environment as we've experienced over the last six months, where certainly we saw economic contraction as you're coming out of that, that's the place to be. It works for both small cap value and growth. They're both performing well. Understand healthcare is the primary sector within the Russell. So there is a large focus on healthcare, but it goes beyond that. It's energy, it's financials, and it's certainly a place that investors should be and should continue to be. Carrie, let's not forget, right? Small caps, mid caps usually lead on the way up, usually lead on the way down. So better if you're long the market that small caps and the Russell are going up in the manner in which they have. It's been pretty astounding. That's right, Scott. Now, what's particularly interesting about small caps, and, and I would define it as any stock between 300 million and 2 billion market cap, there are about 1,500 of those names total that are publicly traded in the U.S. And if we went back to September, the, the total value of all those companies was about $900 billion. Apple is more than twice that. If you look at Microsoft and Amazon, Amazon, each of those companies are much more than the entire universe of small caps. Therefore, in September, I looked at data. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, on the show. You could make the the statement that a 5% decline in some of those mega cap stocks drove the small caps up 30 plus percent, because that's all it would take to move the needle from 900 billion to where they are now, which is about 1.3, 1.4 trillion over the course of the last several months. I think that you, you need to understand that in some of these sectors, biotech, there is much more risk in some of those companies and they don't have a, a multiple because there's no earnings and financials and industrials will be much more likely to be selling at reasonable market caps. Yes, more risk, more return, because you're starting at a lower base. That's what the market looks at. And that makes sense. For investors, we recommend and we do uh, own this type of portfolio. We have a mix of names that are a billion market cap and names that are two trillion market cap. So if you run the gamut, you have some protection on the capitalization side and diversification by industry sector and by multiple. How expensive is the company is also important to consider when you're building your own portfolio. Yeah. Why small caps, big names, though, right? Uh, Shake Shack's up 54 percent just year to date. Congrats, Josh Brown, on that. Uh, as he uh, told us yesterday, he was adding to that. Stitch Fix is up 48 percent. I mean, th- some of these names um, are, f- you know, 
fairly widely held. Uh, Macy's is up 37%. You get a housing play in KB Home up 29%. Papa John's 26, Wingstop 25. Names we don't talk about every day. We should give these companies more credit. 26 is a company you own is up 24%. Yeah, 2.6 reported a great quarter yesterday, so it's following through. It's got lots more upside in the right space, optical, lasers, 5G. I agree with everything that Kerry said. I agree with everything Joe said. But let me take it one step further. And what you just mentioned, I think, proves out my case. I'm not really looking at the indices. I mean, it's great. I look at it in terms of just fun to look at. But I'm really bottoms up. And every stock that you mentioned meaningfully outperformed the indices. So it truly is a stock picker's market. You can add to those names small ones, Vuzix, which has gone from, from three and a half up to 15. Or you can go with a stock like Moderna, which was small cap, and now it's 70 billion. So it's really about the momentum in the fundamentals, as you, saw, as you said with 2.6, and in the others. They all have solid fundamentals. So if you don't have the ability to do your own work or have access to people that do, then buy the indices. But if you can do your own work, there's a lot of themes out there that are trading, whether it's 5G or some others that we'll get to. So it's thematic trading and it's single stock with idiosyncratic stories. And that's where I continue to find opportunity. I don't find bubbles. I find extremely attractive valuations. So that's my playbook now and going forward. And I'm adding to my winners as Josh did. Yeah. I, you know, Jim, I think what we're trying to do here for our viewers is, is find some stock picks and plays, you know, beyond the headlines, beyond the lights on the marquee for the names that get talked about an awful lot. And everybody likes for for the most obvious of reasons. That's one reason why we're looking at small caps. And I want you guys to to discuss that today. But also just the broad sense that you see when the Russell's going up the way it it is it's generally a good sign overall for the market. It, it is, um, Scott. It's certainly, and Joe, Joe highlighted that. I do want to join the jam that you and Steve were just playing, and, and my riff on it is just take a look at the renewable energy sector of the Russell 2000. You can just in the last six months, Companies like Plug Power up 900%, Fuel Cell up almost 500%, and those are in the top 10 of the Russell 2000. Now, to the point that you're making at, which I totally agree with, you can find stocks that are not speculative bubbles like those two. You can find stocks that are very strong, fundamental, uh, well-valued companies. Uh, it, you know, I would look at, say, a Greenbrier, the rail car manufacturer, or Cleveland Cliffs, the iron ore manufacturers. They're up, but they're not up multiple. Multiples the way uh, the way the more speculative names in healthcare and renewable energy space is, and so I just want to I want to repeat what Steve is saying. If you buy the index, you're going to buy the good, bad, and the ugly. If you can do your own fundamental research, as I do, as Steve and Carrie and Joe do, then you're going to decide which ones to own. For me, it's the Greenbriars and Cleveland Cliffs I, of the world within good, the Russell 2000. Good points, but I mean, look, mm. we, we just showed Cliffs. And I think it was John Najarian who talked about Cliffs yesterday as well. Yeah. It mm -hmm. still is a stock that's up better than 100% over the past year. I think that was the time frame that we just showed. We can throw that back up and continue to discuss that. So, it's I mean, a, a lot point. of these stocks have had huge moves, too. And it's, listen, it's a great point. Um, I am aware of what you're saying with Cleveland Cliffs. I don't mean to parse this, but if you look at a two-year chart, it's up 43%. And the point that I would drive at is just go back to the central point that we're all making. Be a stock picker. I mean, obviously, if you can't be a stock picker, you're going to buy the index. But I would much rather be a stock picker and look at Cleveland Cliffs, see what they did yesterday where they refinanced their debt. They're going to save $35 million in interest expense. They issued some shares to further shore up the balance sheet. I see nothing but blue skies ahead. And I don't care that it's up 100% in the last six months. This stock has 50% more in it this year. So let's, let's continue on the stock picking theme and do it through the S&P 500, which shows a pretty broad move. The S&P is going for its seventh mm -hmm. uh, positive session in eight. Within that, you have some really good performance from, from sectors like autos and components of automobiles. It's up 17% year to date. Carrie, you make a play today when you buy O'Reilly Automotive. Tell our viewers why. Yeah, exactly. So O'Reilly is a stock that we've been looking at for months. and. 
2020 was a year in which there were not a lot of miles driven relative to recent years. And the stock traded down, didn't have a good year last year. It came back to an 18 multiple. If you look at the chart, you can see it underperformed. And we bought it recently because it was at a, at a price that we thought was very attractive. We think it'll get back to a 20 multiple. It's gained market share over the last few years. And with the move toward electric cars, they have components that fit in electric cars as well. It's not a business that's going away. We think it's very well managed, strong balance sheet. And this is a name that we think at the multiple relative to the market and to itself historically, we thought it was very attractive as an entry point. Jimmy, GM, earnings. We're looking at the stock today. I'm going to pull it up right here. We'll show it to our viewers, too. Uh, the stock's down a few, a few percentage points. It's had a massive run, though. Uh, what do you tell our viewers now about General yeah, Motors? I, I'm just going to go back to Friday. You and I talked about it, Scott. And what I said there was if you don't own it, buy half of it then and buy half of it after earnings. And you, you're getting your price break today. This is just some profit taking. The earnings were spectacular. Now, that's backwards looking, okay? But you look at demand for their vehicles. You look at the prices paid. They're doing fabulously. There is an issue out there, and it's a global issue about chip shortages. We know that. It's not just a GM issue. This isn't bad management on GM's part. They've got the right products, and they're selling. That chip shortage is something that's going to be worked through this year. Uh, of that, I feel fairly certain, because this is a global issue. It's something that goes to the governmental level of trying to fix this. So so uh, I'm not really worried about that. I see the EV business coming on strong. I love the look of that Cadillac Lyric. Uh, Mary Barra, if you're listening, I want one. Put me at the top of the list. <laughs> I mean, what a run, though, in this stock, right, Jim? It's, a, it's basically a double in, in six months. It's, it's a stunner. It's a stunner. Yeah. So then the question then, Scott, is what's the right multiple for this? Before the recession, the right multiple was six because nobody believed they could stay profitable during a recession. Well, they blew that out of the water last year. I mean, they were massively profitable last year. So now I think that multiple really should go towards double digits 10 times. And, you know, that could easily put them above $60, I'd say, by summer. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, it's the EV and cruise business that will take them to $70 and 80 probably next year. Yeah forward PE of, of uh, you know, a little more than eight and a half. I mean, it brings us to, you know, if, if you go EVs, let's talk renewables because energy's been uh, a bang up place too, up 16% year to date. Uh, Weiss, you own Brookfield Renewable Energy Partners, the Global Clean Energy ETF, which is the ICLN as well. Right, and, and I sold Vestas Wind Systems, very thinly trade stock, even though it's a market cap that's large cap, over 50 billion. But it was acting terribly, and I've got exposure there. Also with AY, which is more of a yield play, but also renewable energy. Look, I think they continue to go. <clears throat> to me, you're just seeing the money come in. ESG, of which they're part of, is the fastest growing asset class I, re I can recall seeing. I mean, it's counting for virtually 80% of every dollar coming into funds. But it extends past there. So if you go with the autos, they're going, I mean, GM got a big boost from going clean energy. 2.6, which you just sp spoke about, I mean, you can't build autonomous driving cars or, you know, or, or EVs without their LiDAR or their lasers, big in the auto industry. So if you look behind this, if you look under it, you get to the ESG plays of all these companies, which is why I think the fossil fuel move is short-lived. It's short-lived anyway, because it's the nature of the beast, but I think that you'll continue to see funds boot out those companies and go to the clean energy. You know, the been trade's been a little tired, though, recently. Yeah. A, a couple of interesting points. Jim, Jim makes me think. No, no, no. You don't apologize. Uh, Jim makes me think about it, though, where, where he says, you know, what is the appropriate multiple for a GM, for example? And I'll just, you know, pull that a little bit wider to suggest that multiples have expanded on a lot of different stocks. So you really need to ask mm -hmm. yourself the question Jim asked of all, uh, all of us about General Motors and, and its multiple. Carrie, that brings me to you. Banks are up 10% a year to date. You trimmed First Republic. Does that fall into the multiple expanded, now I need to take a second look category? First Republic had doubled from the bottom in March. And it's been a fantastic stock. We've owned it for years, and it was really a play on wealth management growing within their umbrella and the West Coast. They started in Silicon Valley, 
and they've expanded across the country to pockets of wealth. And we thought, you know, great run, great play, fantastic. We love it. But, you know, the stock got to be uh, a pretty heavy weight in our portfolio. And we thought, yes, it's, it's about time to trim. Plus, you know, we had this run of financials in the fourth quarter when there was all the big reopening play and the cyclicals. And what we've seen lately is an awful lot of jockeying for position. It's a musical chairs at the top of who is the leader this week and next week. Can we just show quick this chart? Because I think it's, it shows and illustrates what's been going on in the market. Every week or so, there's a change of leadership. Energy is up 17% year to date, but it has only had two consecutive weeks where it's outperformed the S&P. All of the top groups, and this shows the sectors by top, meaning energy, down the list. Nobody has had four weeks of consecutive outperformance. And so I think it's important to watch what the multiples are, the valuation. If you've had a big run, perhaps there are other places and opportunities in which to put the right. money. And we felt that way about First Republic. Okay, let me buzz through a few moves here uh, from all of you before I have to take my first break. I've got Keith Meister coming up after the break. So you want to pay attention to that, and I want to get to that. But I do want to go through this first. Jim, I want to be clear. You, you bought more Cleveland Cliffs yesterday, and I don't know if we said that or made it clear enough for our viewers. You also sold Qualcomm calls and Transocean puts. Can you quickly take me through that? Yeah, let me do the Cleveland Cliffs because they diluted their stock base by 5% with the shares they issued. Stock went down 9%. That right there is a mismatch. Then, as I said, they also refinanced debt, cut their interest expense by 11%. Everything's going right for the company. Lorenzo Goncalves is a dynamic visionary leader. So that was an opportunity to buy more. On the options, those were short-term trades. I made a little money on the Qualcomm. I'm still very long Qualcomm shares, very long Qualcomm shares. That was a short-term trade I closed. And Transocean, it just wasn't working out, so I just closed those puts. Okay, Weiss, give me quick. You sold Vestas Wind Systems and Akamai. Yeah, so Akamai, I've known the company for two decades. It's always, you know, two steps forward, two steps back. They missed the quarter. It wasn't a big position, which is why I haven't talked about that. But I'm finding so many opportunities elsewhere. You know, I'm sort of trying to pare back the losers. Vestas, again, I made some money in it. The stock was trading poorly for what reasons I don't know. Probably because it's very illiquid, a big buy, a big owner wants to get out. Company's in the quiet period, so I can't talk to him. But I got enough clean energy exposure, so that one had to go as a laggard. Also, you sold IFF calls. I'm, I'm betting that has something to do with the surge in the stock today on news I've confirmed as well of Sachemhead uh, taking a position in, in that company. You know, I, I wish you were right in your bet, but I actually sold them yesterday. Ah. I bought it for when the deal was closing. Um, so I didn't benefit from today. I know Sachem had used to be invested in the fund, actually very smart fund, good activists. And the head of Sachem had, as you know, was the first analyst Ackman ever hired. Yeah. And was partner there. Yeah, Scott Ferguson. Person. So, I, 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 yeah, I, I love the company, by the way, and I'm looking to buy it. Quarter comes up soon. Very, very cheap, great cash flow and a world class franchise. OK, and carry quickly S&P Global. You bought more. Tell me quick. The stock been going down since the announcement of the acquisition with IHS, and we thought this was a, an attractive entry, and they're going to make some money on SPACs, too. All right. Good stuff. Uh, we'll get through more of those uh, before the show ends. I promise you that. Up next, Corvex Capital's Keith Meister. He joins us for a halftime exclusive. His new SPAC deal announced today, plus his take on the market. We'll, of course, get that. and We'll do it in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today.
Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Yet another big Wall Street name announcing a sizable SPAC deal today, CM Life Sciences. That's the special purpose acquisition company created by Corvex Capital's Keith Meister and Eli Kasdan of Kasdan Capital, merging with the healthcare company Semaphore, a transaction valued at $2.1 billion. Both investors joining us now. Gentlemen, congrats. Good to see you both. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. You know, life sciences, Keith, not traditionally an area that, that you've invested in. Why this? So you're right, Scott. I'm a generalist. I historically have not been a life sciences investor, but thankfully, thankfully, I've been friends with Eli Kasdan for life. We grew up together. We played peewee football, went to high school together, and uh, I was lucky enough to be the first investor in Eli's fund in 2012 when he launched Kasdan Capital to focus exclusively on life sciences. Eli's done an amazing job and compounded money at an extraordinary rate since he launched his firm in 2012. I think I'm up more than 10x on my investment. And what he saw early was the the marriage of sort of data and science and AI to, to drive health outcomes, and he set up a fund to do it. I um, I saw this firsthand when he was the largest investor in a company called Invitae that in late June uh, bought a business named Archer, and Eli put together the pipe and funded the transaction, and the stock literally went from 18 you know, straight up and I think directly to about 50. I called him the night the deal was announced, and I said, how much money do we make? Congrats. And Eli, in a way only he can, sort of bemoaned about how much opportunity there is in his space and how if he had more capital, all the things he could do. Now, mind you, he's grown his fund from $6 million to, I think, over $3.5 billion off phenomenal performance. But he said there's all these amazing companies that have tremendous growth that are early in their life cycle that if you can give them capital, you can help accelerate their growth. And as I heard this, I said, Eli, you should do a SPAC. And Eli said to me, you know, what's a SPAC? <laughs> and I explained it to him. And he said, I'll only do it if you do it with me. And literally on the phone that night, um, it was right around 4th of July, uh, we decided to do a SPAC together. We launched the largest life science SPAC in September with about $445 million, plus our firms each committed another 150. So we had a $600 million pool of capital. And we went out to do exactly what we found with Semaphore, finding an amazing company, about $2 billion in scale, that didn't want to sell out, but wanted to access the, the public markets to accelerate its growth and partner with the public markets to go from a $2 billion company to a $5 billion company to a $10 billion company to a $20 billion company. And I'll turn it over to Eli, but we found the perfect company in Eric and Semaphore to do that. And maybe let me let uh, Eli explain why. Well, it's funny. I, I think the man on the street knows knows about a SPAC at this point, right? I mean, everybody seems to know uh, about a SPAC. This is your bread and butter, uh, Eli, as as Keith mentioned. I think you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, were, were an investor in private market in 23andMe, which is incidentally a uh, in its own SPAC deal as well. You think there's more emphasis on this space now because of the pandemic and, and the intense focus there is on genomics, on healthcare, big data, AI, et cetera? Yeah, no, well, first of all, thanks for having me. And it's uh, super exciting to be doing this and, uh, with Keith, who also uh, introduced me to my wife. So that's a, an additional mitzvah that, that he has. Um, yeah, it's an amazing time in the industry. And I think the, the pandemic, as challenging as it has been, kind of shown a light on an industry that has been long on promise but taking a long time to deliver. But the tools and technologies for analyzing and manipulating molecular biology, DNA specifically, have accelerated our uh, ability to generate vast amounts of molecular data. And when you take that data and apply it to things like next generation diagnostics or therapeutics, or in the case of Semaphore, when you combine that data with clinical data, right, the, the medical records, your, your treatment selection, all that information, when you combine those two together, um, you really can transform medicine and outcomes. Um, and so it's just an exciting time. The pandemic kind of shone the light on it, but it was at the right time because the industry is in a, a major inflection. Um, we've been early investors in Illumina and PacBio and Oxford Nanopore and, and application companies like Foundation Medicine and data companies like Flatiron and therapeutic companies. 
Um, so we've seen this whole wave transpire. Um, and when, when, um, when we came across Semaphore, and I've known Eric for a very long time, and I think one of the key things to keep in mind for, for investors in the space and for everyone is technology is important, but you need talent uh, and, and entrepreneurs and, and experts behind that technology to bring it all together. Um, and Eric specifically um, worked at Merck, Roche, was CSO of PacBio, uh, and then went inside Mount Sinai to get at the clinical data to bring those tools and experiences together, spun it out into Semaphore, has 150 plus uh, data scientists pulling that data together, but in an intelligent way um, on a business that's growing like a weed. And I think uh, what Keith, you know, when I started telling Keith about it, I've been bemoaning uh, my lot in life for a long time, just not having enough capital to sort of accelerate these businesses. When I told Keith about the potential and he described, yeah, you can raise a lot of money through SPAC. You can recruit a board of experts. And that's what we have. We have Sean George from the CEO of Vitae on the board, Nat Turner, uh, CEO and, and co-founder of Flatiron, and Emily LeProust, uh, CEO and co-founder of Twist, on our board that are going to, you know, to, to bring talent, expertise, and sponsorship to something like this. It's an unbelievable growth opportunity, so it's very, very exciting. You have, Keith, um, a pipe that includes, of investors, the investor pipe, of SoftBank, Viking, T. Rowe, Fidelity. What does that tell you about the thirst of institutions to invest in the life sciences space right now? Well, obviously, um, there's there's a large appetite. Um, our pipe was well oversubscribed. And I think part of it is people saw and got to look under the hood of Semaphore, saw the growth, believed in the team. And unlike a traditional IPO where um, you buy the business based on the past, investors could do due diligence and buy into this as a business that's going to grow from $200 million of revenue to $500 million. And as it grows, its margins are going to inflect from 25 to 55% as it builds its platform. And I think the, the sophisticated investors got that story and realized that the multiple would expand as you had that growth. So, you know, the SPAC process allows people to spend more time with management, do lots of due diligence, and, you know, buy, buy into companies they understand and want to bet on the story and the future. And when you hear from Eric, which you will in, in a moment, you're going to understand why some of the leading growth investors in the world were eager to participate. This is a company that's worth a lot more money as a public company with $500 million of cash on its balance sheet because he has an amazing flywheel where he can invest in his business and accelerate growth. And all those projections we, we showed were based on the status quo business plan. So if Eric can do inorganic or organic things to accelerate growth, that'll accelerate value and hopefully bring forward the multiple. So I think getting the SoftBanks, the Vikings, the, the Fidelities, the BlackRocks, the Perceptives, the Deerfields, the, the names we mentioned, plus, plus many, many more, just shows you the potential for Semaphore. And clearly, to bring it back to the pandemic, you know, Semaphore is one of the good guys. This is a company that's using technology to help improve, you know, patients' lives. In a world in which there's a lot of narrative about people getting forced out of traditional tech because of privacy, because of monopoly issues, I think a lot of investors are looking at what Eli saw back in 2012 and saying, this is a space I want to be in. This is real growth, and it's real growth with a nice positive ESG element to it as well. You, you raise an interesting, an interesting question as it relates to sort of the overall environment for SPACs right now, where, where you talk about the fact, and you use these words just now, about being able to spend more time with a CEO and do the due diligence. One of the, I think it's fair to say, risks right now with SPACs is that the investor who's looking at all of this is reliant on people like you guys to do all of the due diligence in a sense where in a traditional IPO, it would be much more sort of broad. Is, is that a fair uh, risk know, uh, to bring up for, for the uh, uh, investor who's watching right now? Look, the investor you know, has the same risk, whether they're buying some of CM Life stock in the market or any other stock. But let, let's go through a process for one second. You know, Kasdan and Corvex put approximately $95 million into this investment. We did our diligence. We believe in this investment and we put our money 
at risk. The leading investors, to your point, like the names I just mentioned, also chose to uh, put capital in. And we had all had the benefit of spending time with Eric and his management team, doing deep diligence on projections, looking through business plans, asking questions. Doesn't mean we're 100% going to be right, but we've done our work and we feel like it's a very attractive risk return and and, and a good investment. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, look, the, the, the stock... CM Life Sciences is up right now 61 percent. So it's it's been an obviously an overwhelmingly positive uh, debut. You mentioned uh, the CEO is with us as well of Semaphore, Eric Schott. He is the founder and CEO. I welcome him in. I have a few questions, uh, Eric. Congratulations on this deal. Had you thought about being a public company before you were approached by Eli and Keith? Yeah, we were beginning to explore how how we may want to enter the public markets, kind of leverage the uh, the energy that's in the public markets for this kind of space. And uh, like Eli, uh, I had never heard of a SPAC uh, <laughs> up until uh, uh, being a, you know, catching up with Eli and hearing about his SPAC. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, an amazing opportunity to uh, leverage as a vehicle to go public. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, it just makes me laugh about, you know, all of these people, um, you and others, even, you know, very well and successful long-term investors are first learning in some respects about, this brave new world that we've entered into with SPACs. We have a couple of uh, indices here in which we track the SPAC activity, you know, once it's formed and, and, and once it does a deal, which is interesting in, in and of itself. What's the practical application? What can you tell our, our viewers, Eric, uh, and really the investing public? That, that's who our viewers are about what this company does, why they should be an investor in what Semaphore is going to do in the future. Yeah, it's really it's really all about you know the way I think about it is uh, AI driven standard of care. You know, so AI is the standard of care. How do we harness all of the information that technologies like next gen sequencing can produce on patients? Integrate that with the medical uh, records around patients in partnership with patients and partnership with a physician. Compute on those data, derive the the, the most meaningful, accurate insights, and then a way to communicate that. Uh, back to physician and patient in a way that facilitates clinically actionable decision making. So it's how to tie all the pieces together, whether it's the the generation of the data, the interpretation of the data, the conveying of that information and the standard of care to to improve outcomes for all. What are you going to use the money for? So the money, yeah. So the proceeds, it's all it's going to be how can we move bigger, better, faster? Like we, you know, so we have a standardized uh, genomics platform that for health systems can standardize the use of genomic information across the spectrum of disease An information platform that, again, facilitates integration of that data and uh, insights derived from that data and conveying it to uh, physicians and, and patients in a meaningful way. So it's about like, what are the gaps in this platform? How do we want to fill out the genomics platform with additional technology that we now have the, you know, the fuel to go out and acquire as opposed to build on our own? How do we enhance our ability to acquire and manage and scale, harmonize data across uh, multiple health systems and so on? So it's all going to be how to, how to accelerate in a uh, increase adoption, the rate at which we can drive into a health system, again, in partnership with physicians and patients to provide more holistic solutions. Well, I appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Congrats to you uh, on the deal today. Eric Schott, we will see you again soon. We'll certainly follow the company. Uh, Eli, thank you. It's good to meet you. Welcome to the Halftime Report. Hope to have you back sometime. Keith, you'll stick yeah. around. We're going to take a Great. quick thank break. We'll, yeah, come, uh, we'll come back. We'll have much more with Keith Meister. Talk a little markets. We'll do that next. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
I'm Seema Modi. Here's what's happening at this hour. Prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, have opened a criminal investigation into former President Trump's efforts to change Georgia's election results, including a call to the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, asking him to find votes for him. House impeachment managers say they have more video to bolster their case against former President Trump. That will surpass what they presented yesterday. The new footage will include never-before-seen security cam video from the Capitol Hill riot. In San Francisco Bay, cleanup is underway after an oil spill from the Chevron refinery. Officials say a break in an underground pipe is responsible for the leak. And after a seven-month voyage, a Chinese spacecraft has entered orbit around Mars. The mission seeks to land a rover in the surface. The Chinese accomplishment comes just a day after a probe from the United Arab Emirates began orbiting the red planet. The space race is here. That's your CBC News update at this hour, Scott. Back to you. It is indeed. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. All right, we're back with Keith Meister. He is the managing partner and CIO of Corvex uh, Capital, uh, still with us. What's your view of the market here? You know, some people see what's happening with SPACs and say it's got to be a sign of froth. I just read today, I think Colin Kaepernick has a (laughs) SPAC. Everybody has a SPAC. And you've just done a successful deal. So, so let, let's remove uh, the SPAC from the question of the market for a second. Uh, clearly, there's a massive amount of liquidity in the system, which is part of why you see a proliferation of, of SPACs and other forms of capital raising vehicles. But the fact that there's so much capital in the market is part of what's driving valuations. So I was pretty bullish coming into the fourth quarter, just driven by the elections going to pass. We're going to have an outcome. Uh, the Fed is all in, and they don't appear to be pulling up at any time. And you're about—you just got stimulus, and we're about to get more and more stimulus. And, and all that, to me, set up for a, a quite a powerful rally in equities. As we rolled into to, to 2021, uh, we we had the Dem sweep, which meant more stimulus, and, and, and the Fed not appearing to to have any interest in pulling away and really wanting to see some inflation. And you've had this phenomenon of increased retail investing in the market. So, you know, everyone has sort of stayed home, used some of their excess savings, which they can't spend going on a cruise or going to Disneyland, and they have money and they're able to buy and sell securities without having commissions. And that behaviors work because assets have improved. So, you know, I probably would not have predicted the, the retail investment phenomenon, but if you combine the, 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 the fiscal and the monetary policy, I think that gives a, a, a powerful backdrop. Now, with that said, everything that had me bullish going into the end of last year, people sort of know today. So the question is, you know, is it a bubble and where are we? The flip to that is, you know, volatility is still very, very high. And, and um, you know, implied volatility is like 10 points higher than realized volatility. So everyone comes on TV and talks about um, all the complacency, yet the market's not showing you that in, in terms of volatility. And the little, the episode we had at the end of January where, um, you know, the market pulled back a little bit as um, some heavily shorted names uh, uh, ripped and people had to degross, while it was painful when it was happening, I think it got everyone from a positioning perspective to degross, get a little bit more on sides. Volatility was up, which made people reduce their books. And and I think that happened in January, right? So I think that sets us up well with the economy going to reopen. You know, the ultimate life science investment is 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 an investment in the economy right now that the vaccine will work. I'm very optimistic. I don't know if it'll take you know, six weeks or 12 weeks. But as we look forward, I think we're going to have a lot of vaccines available. There's a lot of pent-up demand. So just when you've had um, additional stimulus, the Fed's still there. You're going to get the economy reopening. So I feel like the economy is going to be very, very strong in the first half of 2021, which then creates what's the biggest risk. And I think the biggest risk is, you know, do you get inflation and what does that do to the price of equities? But until the market starts to worry about that, which I'm not smart enough to know exactly when, but given how hard it's been to create inflation um, over the last you know decade plus, I think it'll take a little longer. So I feel like for the next several months, the setup for the market is quite constructive. Do you, do you think the proliferation of SPACs is out of the liquidity and the low rates that you spoke about? Well, yeah, if you think about the SPAC trade, right, you buy a share for $10. Um, if you don't like the deal, 
you say, I'm not voting for it. Can I have my $10 back? That costs a lot less money to own. That costs a lot less to hold in a world of zero interest rates. So in a world where you can leverage your balance sheet, get a lot of capital, and the cost of capital is very, very low, you're buying a free option. I also just told you volatility is high. In a world in which volatility is high, a free option is worth more. So the right deal, if it can go from 10 to 20 or whatever the case is, you can make a, an exceptional rate of return with effectively no risk other than the time value of money. And we just discussed that that cost almost zero today. Mm -hmm. So to me, this makes a lot of sense. With that said, there will be some good SPAC deals. Hopefully ours is one of them. I'm really confident there'll be some less good SPAC deals. And not all deals will be the same. The structure makes a lot of sense. It's a it's a vehicle that people will use, but some deals will be good and some deals won't, and it'll be very much case specific. So, when you look at your book, which I'm I'm looking at right now, um, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet. So you've got you know good concentration in those mega cap techs. Um, you want to tell me about your your view behind those stocks, which you know had a little bit of a slumber since September, and then seemingly have woken up again. Uh, MGM reports after the bell today. I know you're on the board, so I, I don't know that you can speak specifically about it, but you can certainly speak to your view of a reopening economy helping companies like that. Um, I yep. believe you do what you're comfortable doing as it relates to MGM. I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah, look, with regard to MGM, obviously, I won't comment on, on the business today. Everyone understands that, um, you know, casino resorts have had whatever challenges they've had in the fourth quarter just regard with regard to COVID. But I think most of the focus when they report earnings will be on their growing uh, uh, sports betting and online business. I am massively bullish uh, on the potential opportunity for BetMGM, which is our U.S. sports betting and iGaming business, which is a 50-50 JV with another company called uh, Intain, formerly known as GVC. And I think um, over time, as investors realize the potential of, of BetMGM, I think that's a, um, a, a very uh, misvalued asset inside of MGM. If you combine that with the world reopening and MGM having learned a lot of lessons from the pandemic, there's nothing that forces you uh, to think better about how to run your assets than having your revenue go to zero overnight. So you're really forced to do zero-based budgeting. I think Bill Hornbuckle, the CEO, and the management team there did an exceptional job. So I'm really excited for the combination of, once again, at some point, the economy is going to reopen. MGM will be a better company for the lessons they've learned. And we have this massively powerful platform in sports betting, which um, I think is one of the, the few hidden sort of white space growth opportunities in the world. I think that's become more consensus over the last few months. But, but it's only going to continue. And I think within that, people are underestimating iGaming. So that's MGM. And obviously, you know, Barry Diller and IAC recently bought 12% of the company. They've been great additions. And it's all about how, how do we drive digital. Let me do this with you. Let me do this with you, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Let me just get a break in. Let me come back. Um, certainly can answer on the, on the big tech, the FANG stocks that you own. And I know that uh, at least one of my committee members has a question for you as well. Can we do that? Great. Sure. All right. Good stuff. We'll be back with uh, Keith Meister in two minutes. All right. We're back with Keith Meister. All right. Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft. Uh, I had to pay some bills. So now uh, <laughs> back to you. Yeah. So, so to me, the pitch on those companies is pretty simple, right? They're some of the greatest companies in the world with the greatest modes, with the stronger balance sheets than the U.S. government. And they're trading two multiple turns higher than the S&P. I'm very confident over any medium and long period of time, they're going to grow at more than 2x the S&P. So if you look out a few years, you're buying, if you take a basket of Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, and Google, I think it's trading at like 19 times 2024 earnings. And the market on the same metric is trading at 17 times. The market's supposed to grow at 5 or 6%. And these companies are growing probably low to mid-teens. And I bet there's a lot of upside and with no financial engineering. So, you know, it, it's boring. People have forgotten about them because people want to own things that are story stocks or are reopening. But to me, the Garpy names in the market, you could probably add payments and a whole bunch of other areas are the place where you can participate in the upside. And if we are getting a little long in the tooth, you have a lot of downside protection. Yeah. Carrie Firestone has a question for you. Hi, Carrie. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks for being here. And this relates to a comment that I, I don't know whether you made this or Eli made this comment. Uh, I knew Eli's father for years when I ran the biotech fund at Fidelity. And uh, we all know that in biotech, unlike most other industries, 
90 plus percent of the products that go into phase one never get to the FDA. And when you commented, when someone commented on how you're able to buy in a SPAC the future rather than looking at the past, the future for most early stage venture type molecules and businesses is nothing. Nothing happens for most of them. And well, I'm wondering whether you feel some obligation to the you know, investors, public investors, rather than sophisticated investors who recognize that about this industry, not AI, but just where you might put this money um, as you distribute it through that, uh, through the funds you have now. So Karen, it's, it's, it's a great question. And when we set up this back, we actually told our investors sort of exactly what you just said. We would do everything except for a therapeutic because our view is that's a hits-driven business, just, just the point you've made. We wanted to invest in the picks and shovels, a platform company. Our view is there's like $200 billion a year spent on the, on the capital that helps these drug companies uh, uh, develop drugs. And we wanted to be on that side of the trade where we could own an operating business that wasn't hit-driven, but that was empowering companies like the big pharma companies that want to develop drugs. So in the case of Semaphore, Semaphore is not developing drugs, but if you know large pharma company right. A is, they're providing the data to help them do that. The bet I'm willing to make, and I think we'd all be willing to make, is the amount of capital spent when there's more technology for trying to develop drugs is only going to increase. So being the person that enables these companies to do it with a better success ratio is a great spot to be. So I agree with you. Uh, a one-off therapeutic would not have been a great company to help grow as a public company. So that's why we focused our SPAC more on the, the picks and shovel side of the industry. Appreciate you coming on uh, today, Keith, and talking about this deal, the markets as well. It's nice to see you again. Stay well, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. All right. That's uh, Keith Meister again with uh, Corvex. Now to Kayla Tausche has breaking news on Boeing. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Scott. Uh, I've just learned from some sources that in a January 24th bilateral phone call between French President Emmanuel Macron and President Joe Biden, that President Macron floated the idea of the U.S. and France pursuing a negotiated settlement in a years-long trade dispute between Boeing and Airbus that has resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees incurred by each company and has resulted in nearly $12 billion in goods uh, involved in transatlantic trade, uh, seeing tariffs levied in just the recent years. Now, the World Trade Organization has finished its litigation, and each side has rolled back the tax subsidies at the heart of this dispute, which has now been going on for 16 years, leading many experts to say that all that is left now is to reach a deal. And while neither of the official readouts released by Washington or Paris included this topic uh, in the conversation, the fact that Macron raised this issue to Biden shows how important it is uh, for the European Union to try to lower the temperature on trade and try to get the Biden administration to roll back uh, some of these trade penalties. Now, the White House and the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative could not be reached for comment before airtime. Of course, this would be an action. A settlement would be an action that would fall on the plate of USTR, which does not currently have a chief. Uh, we are told that the hearing for nominee Catherine Tai uh, could happen as early as the week of February 22nd. Scott. Okay. Appreciate that breaking news. Kayla Tausi, thank you very much. Let's do the futures outlook now. Bring it full circle. The Russell 2000 small caps index pulling back today after hitting another all-time high this morning. Jeff Kilberg's talking and trading the futures uh, in the Russell, which uh, is very, very topical. Jeff. Well, Judge, it's interesting. And Kerry did a great job articulating. When you take nearly all the Russell 2000 market caps and combine them, they barely add up to a Microsoft or an Amazon. So I'm looking for a short breather in the Russell 2000. And why I'm looking for that is because we've seen significant outperformance in the last six months of the Russell 2000 compared to the S&P 500. It's still lagging the NASDAQ 100, but nonetheless, I'm looking for a short-term pullback here. So I want to be a seller at 2300, looking for a dip down to 2150. I'm being mindful as the longer-term trend is higher for for the small caps, so I'll be stopped out of this trade at 23.50. Judge, three to one risk reward. I'm risking $250 to make 750, pal. All right, good stuff. Thank you. We will take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll do final trades, and we'll do it next. Welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Frank Holland. Sundial Farms up more than 40% today. The cannabis producer, a new darling of the Wall Street bets, Reddit. Cannabis stocks in general really taking off following a post on Tilray and Afria 
Note there's some rocket emojis on these posts. That's shorthand for confidence that these stocks will rally. One user calling the thread weed stock bets. Another saying, quote, weed stocks take me away with four rocket emojis. Some users saying they're taking their GameStop gains and then putting them into cannabis stocks, which have been outperforming this year on hopes of U.S. legalization. The Amplify and the MJ Cannabis ETFs both more than doubling in 2021. Scott, back over to you. Uh, Rippin, thank you. Frank Holland Weiss plays right into you, man. Tilray, I hope you bought it before the 25% surge. I actually bought it, as my disclosures stated, last week. So I bought them on the third. Tilray's more than doubled. It's going to keep going. Tilray and Kronos have great CEOs from the consumer industry, from Nestle's, from Blue Buffalo, Erwin Simon, from Haines Celestial. These are real. Don't forget, it was two years ago that Tilray hit 250. While it may not get there, the march is going to keep continuing, and I welcome the Reddit people aboard. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those poster stocks that got way, way up and then came way, way down. So uh, a, a disclaimer is, is necessary, right? Without a doubt. I mean, there, there's risk there. But Schumer, I bought it because Schumer came out and said it's a priority to get it legalized in federal laws and started taking off from then. So there are real fundamental reasons for them going. A little ahead of itself, sure. But where's it going to be in six months? They're going to be a lot higher. Okay. Um, Joe, I got Uber after the bell, right? Earnings, you own it? I do. Uh, broke out to an all-time high after Lyft's earnings yesterday. There's going to be obviously a deterioration in the mobility, but delivery has been very strong. I like the Drizzly acquisition, as I know you do as well. I'm holding Uber, and I'd add to it as it continues to move higher. I do. Yes, I do. Thank you very much for that. All right, let's do final trades. We'll circle back around. Carrie, why don't you start us off? Ford of FTV, it's an industrial company. If we have an infrastructure bill, it will benefit. They do measurements, testing. They reported a great fourth quarter. The stock's underperform. We think it's attractively priced. Okay, thank you for that. Farmer Jim? Going to come back to Cleveland Cliffs, and now there's a new reason that tariff news on airplanes could very well apply to tariffs on steel imports, and that would be positive for Cleveland Cliffs. Yeah, watching that stock uh, a little better than 4% today. All right, Steve Weiss. I'm staying with Tilway and Cronus. The Cronus CEO came in during the summer, so Blue Buffalo to G General Mills for $9 billion after a deal for it at $500 million fell okay. apart. The guy is a star. All right, quickly. Joe? Great conversation on life sciences. PKI Perkin Elmer is the life science name I own. All right, good stuff. Good to see everybody. Thanks for watching The Exchanges Now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.